Your startup disc is full. This also means you are finished. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMind. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight for factories, check out RubyMind by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 117 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Hello, everybody. David Brady. For topical use only. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have two special guests. We have Robin Ward. Hello. And Sam, is it Saffron or? Saffron, yeah. Saffron? Okay. Howdy. So, since you guys are new to the show, do you want to introduce yourselves really quickly? Sure. You want to go first, Sam? Sure. Um, I love to volunteer other people. (laughs) Excellent. I'm Sam Saffron. Um, I work for Discourse. I'm a co-founder. Love the show. Excited to be here. And cool. Robin? I guess I guess I'll go ahead. Yeah, I'm another co-founder of Discourse, a uh, Ruby developer. I guess a lot of JavaScript these days. Yeah, delighted to be here and geek out. Wait, did you say JavaScript? I do a fair amount of JavaScript. Yeah. Are you on the right show? <laughs> I like Ruby too. Look, can I bribe you to come on the right show? <laughs> Uh, hey, you, hey, these people actually listen to the show, you know? That's yeah. Cool. yeah. Don't, I wonder don't... how many developers you have come on who don't know any JavaScript. Because if you're doing any kind of web app, you probably are at least using a little. Actually, yeah. that would be hilarious if JavaScript Jabber actually had a just a run of developers who knew no JavaScript. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Talking JavaScript, are you guys fans of Turbolinks? <laughs> let's, let's bring I, it into like uh, some controversial territory. Yeah, let's off. just get into it right off the bat. I yeah. didn't know you guys were going to start slinging mud. I, I, <laughs> I tweeted this week that I hate Turbo Links is the new I hate the asset pipeline. <laughs> yeah, much. I, I love how it like is not supposed to change anything. I moved probably the dumbest, simplest app over. To Rails for recently, and TurboLinks broke the hell out of it. Like, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You know, though, people did hate the asset pipeline when it was new, but I think they all liked the idea of it. Like, yeah. it just didn't yeah. work as advertised. I think TurboLinks is a little different in that many people hate the idea of it. I th- I think it's a little more like the coffee script call, where people like hated the hated the call. You know, the, the, the DHH made of we're going this way. And a lot of people were like, you know, the asset pipeline, everybody uses that and needs some form of that. But CoffeeScript, no, I just want to use JavaScript. How do I turn this off? And I, I wonder if TurboLinks is more in that direction. I, yeah, I think the, the issue is conceptually it has, has issues because mm-hmm. the state um, kind of gets all mucked up. Like yeah. you want to be able to just click on a link and and not do those CSS requests and JavaScript requests and just you know move to that new page, bring the HTML in. Yeah. But the tricky thing is that like libraries like Angular or Ember, they maintain state for you and take yeah. care of all that. But there's no real clean way of kind of saying you know I, I want to start clean slate on this new page. Yeah. Yeah. Just let me... rewind me to here. Like I don't know like Haskell transactional memory if it had something like that, you know where you just, you know, 
rewind back to where you were and start mm-hmm. again. That would be great. Yeah. Let's, let's think of it this way. How many people fire up your Ruby server and just let the same server run for six months and just keep using that, you know, and don't ever restart that, you know? Probably not, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Probably yeah, well, at some point you want to refresh or something. The thing is, for me, is that it seems like it's kind of somewhere in between um, going, you know, whole hog into Ember or Angular or something and just, you know, doing full page refreshes. And I don't know. I start getting toward the complexity where I'm starting to get into that gray area and I just I just go all the way to a framework. So I I, I kind of have mm-hmm. a hard time just seeing where I'm going to use it and get major, major big results out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, tricky I for me as a library maintainer. I maintain Rack Mini Profiler, and like you get reports. You know, your library doesn't work with TurboLinks. Whose fault is this? Yeah, is it no. my library? Yeah. Is it TurboLinks Turbo doesn't work with my library. That's <laughs> the correct way to say that. <laughs> that's that's what I object to making it a default because I mean, some people just say, "Well, if you don't like it, just turn it off." But right. because it's on by default, all these other projects are affected. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I, I genuinely think it's a bit on the part of Rails. They've they've realized that people are moving towards this JavaScript MVC on top of Rails MVC. More power to them. They're going to try and tame the wild woolly west that is the JavaScript ecosystem. I don't think they have a chance in heck of succeeding at it. But I mean, but that's what Angular and Ember and and Backbone and all these guys have tried to do. And you know, we might settle on some frameworks down the road, but yeah, we're not quite there yet. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that those frameworks they give you a decent sized toolbox, and with TurboLinks, it feels like they just gave you a hammer, right? You know, and a, so a hammer that stick that won't fit in any toolbox because it has a it has a three foot long handle. <laughs> I think if you build a site in a very particular way, it works well yeah. if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. that's what I'm trying to say. If you're going to yeah. cobble the whole thing together with nails. The turbo links is a good thing because it's the hammer. But if if you need screws or you have some widget that you need to add in, it just it doesn't quite do the job. So. Actually, the the funny thing about turbo links is that it's super awesome for a non JavaScript site. <laughs> like if you're using no JavaScript anywhere, then it's like the perfect solution because it gives you all of this. <laughs> That's free. Why didn't we put it in Jekyll? Oh my gosh. <laughs> So since we're talking a little bit about the the frameworks and stuff, I'm I'm curious because uh, you guys with Discourse, you went with Ember, and I mean you guys fully adopted it. I mean there there really isn't a whole lot going on that isn't served up through uh, the JavaScript framework. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, for, like our I've said like we have an API like virtually 100% API coverage from day one because and we know it's battle tested because we use it. There's a few functions like I think resetting your password and some of the open like OAuth stuff like is still done like via regular server side rendering and requests like and, that. Uh, and uh, indexing is interesting as well, like because uh, if you oh, disable yeah. JavaScript, you can actually see stuff on Discourse. And that's because we render twice, like we'll render uh, a basic format of the site just so people that don't have JavaScript or disabled JavaScript or crawling websites can still get the content. So I, I remember talking to somebody with jQuery UI and they call that progressive enhancement. Is that kind of the approach you're taking? I would say no. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not progressive enhancement because we're not it's, – it's so um, – 
so many features are missing there that you're not really getting the full functionality okay. in that mode. It's more at least display the content. That that would be the <laughs> strategy there. So it's not it's not like the site. Uh, the progressive enhancement thing is like a lot of times they'll come and they'll make the site completely work without JavaScript yes. and then and then layer the JavaScript beautifulness on top of it and make it work wonderfully yeah. but it doesn't really work well that strategy with the javascript mvc framework is progressive enhancement the new kids way of saying down uh, downgrade or degrading gracefully Mostly. i think it totally yeah i think it totally is the problem is i think like if you stick to progressive enhancement it like limits what you can do you know, for example, we we really believe that like infinite scrolling is a good thing, and that's the kind of thing you you can't progressively enhance. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's many kinds of application that you application, sorry, that like you just would never be able to build in a browser, even though you have this awesome toolkit to do it, because it w- it wouldn't degrade to that properly. Yeah. So, do you feel like you do sacrifice some accessibility? Well, if you mean like for people like with screen readers and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I don't think so. Um, like you can turn on, I, I don't remember the key shortcuts in Chrome, but you can actually turn on screen reading in any browser. And like screen readers these days are really powerful. They can read like most content that's in a DOM, especially in like a text heavy site like Discourse. It's pretty easy to just go through it. In the future, I actually want to add more of like, there's a, I think that there's a standard called, I think, Yaria. I, I don't know yeah. if I'm pronouncing it right. And the idea is you extend your HTML tags with certain attributes to make it even easier for screen readers to jump around. And I really want to get on board with that. But yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of false that like you know a JavaScript heavy site is, is totally inaccessible these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so, so there, like, security-minded people like we, we won't browse the web without with JavaScript because we just don't trust it. But <laughs> <laughs> I honestly I run NotScript in Chrome. And I'm a big fan, and yeah, there's just so many security problems with with JavaScript, and it, I, I, it just hurts my heart to see so many people just saying, well, JavaScript is the way the web runs now. That's like saying IE6 is the way the web runs now. Just deal with it. No, I'm going to whitelist some sites instead. Don't you find that like just about everything is broken if you disable yep. JavaScript by default? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Until okay. you, the first time I visit a site, um, I have to whitelist tons of stuff. And my the number of what's what's really fun is when you whitelist a site and then it still doesn't load and then you check the whitelist and there's 17 new sites that have all been brought in because of the JavaScript and you enable those and then it still won't load because and there's 17 more sites that have to be whitelisted. Those are those are the ones where uh, if I know the author of the site they get a, they get a screenshot from me saying seriously. <laughs> I guess yeah. I mean, with JSONP and all of that, uh, a lot of sites kind of build now on multiple domains serving the JavaScript, and it makes it yeah. very, very complicated yeah. to say what you allow and what you don't. Yeah. And on the flip side, there's the um, cross-site request forgery that goes on. That yeah. you know, people can just trick you to go to a site and own all of your accounts everywhere because there mm-hmm. are vulnerabilities out there. Yep. Uh, we just fixed one this week. You know, it's just it, it's crazy the amount of um, a vulnerability that's out there with with cross site mm-hmm. request for forgery. Because I've seen some of the craziest things that you would not imagine they were an issue, and they suddenly are an issue. Um, mm-hmm. I think a friend from a previous 
company blogged about one where they use JavaScript proxy objects to suck out a CSRF token. Yeah. And all sorts of crazy, crazy things like that. Yeah. My my father in law installed something that installed a toolbar and he, he called to say, What do I do now? And I'm like, Well, you can run your antivirus and whatnot. And then he said, Oh no, I think it's fine. Gmail just prompted me to change my password and I changed and I can get in and I said oh. I'm on my way over right now. <laughs> we got his accounts back. <laughs> oh, wow. So you so you went all in on the Ember decision. Yeah. What, what made you choose Ember and and uh, in particular over the other choices? Right, there's lots of uh, front end choices. Why Ember? That was something in the beginning that like I, I'd been following a lot of the front end frameworks for a while, and I think one of the main reasons is is because my previous gig before Discourse, we worked on like a really heavy JavaScript app that had like all these awesome visual flourishes and stuff. And it was a really rich jQuery app, but the code just became like totally unmanageable. I ended up with these like files that were like super long and we tried to do the best things like, you know, namespacing things and putting them in the appropriate place, but it was just so disorganized. So after I like got off that project, I was left with this like huge desire to organize code. So the various like frameworks were attractive to me. So I, you know, I looked at a few of them. I looked at Backbone and Ember and Angular and stuff like that. And I, I don't know. I liked I liked the way uh, Ember ha- shared certain values values with Rails. You know, the convention over configuration and stuff like that. Yeah. I think Angular. I mean, a lot of it is I think actually like closer to an aesthetic choice. But from for a Rails developer, I, I thought Ember was a lot more familiar, and it just was like an easier fit. I mean, I guess Yehuda being a core developer on Ember and taking a lot of the stuff that he learned on Rails is the reason for that. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Are you guys using Ember Data or Ember Model? I don't remember which one's which. Yeah, are you, you using are. the one that isn't finished yet? <laughs> <laughs> They're all not finished yet. You're, you're forgetting. None of these are finished. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ember isn't actually 1.0 yet. It's like pre-release 6. Um, uh, Angular is one, but no, we're not using Ember Data or Ember Model. We use our own, like, we just use jQuery Ajax. We have a few, like, helper functions. We actually have something called Discourse Ajax, but it's really just, it wraps jQuery's Ajax stuff in promises. Mm-hmm. Did you, um, and, and does CSRF tokens now. That's it does. Well. Yeah. yeah. Did you find it difficult to work with Ember with it not being 1.0 one, one yet? Um, there were times, if I'm going to be honest, that it was difficult. Like, when they... In the beginning, when when we started, there was no router in, in Ember, and so I I hand rolled my own, which is like not necessarily the greatest way of you know doing things, but it worked. Then they came out with a router, and then went through like a serious revision. So I actually had to swap out the router twice in our project, and that was a fair amount of work. But now that the router is stabilized, I think it's like it's in pretty good shape. I mean, there haven't been any major changes that have broken it in a serious way you know, for, I think, many months now. So it's in good shape. So maybe another even uh, more controversial question and maybe a little more on topic for us is, why Ruby? That's not where your past experience lies, right? No, no. My, my past experience is a bit complicated because I, I worked in .NET shops for years and years and then took a break from .NET and started doing Ruby back when it was Rails 2. I uh, did that for a year or two, and then I uh, moved to Stack Exchange, where I worked on C Sharp code again and ASP.NET MVC and all that stuff with Jeff. And uh, Jeff started a discourse with Robin, who is actually very, very experienced in Rails. He never really took the break that I took, 
the, then there was his big blog about why Ruby. And I guess the thing is that I love Ruby. I've always loved Ruby. And Robin, I think, as well as in that boat. Absolutely. So there is, there is that. And if you want to have a big open source project, uh, you don't have too many options at the moment on the table of what to do. You could do PHP, but you're never going to find people to develop on it. Everybody likes bagging PHP. I'm sure there are, there, there are people who can code tidy PHP and whatnot, but it's just there was no chance I'd work on a project that was PHP. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> it just, yeah, I mean, the, the language is beautiful in Ruby. A lot of the decisions there are just, uh, just fantastic. I love, I love it when I'm editing Ruby code. So, so there was that. We, we did experiment, I guess, with the idea of maybe doing Node.js and then you do JavaScript everywhere. But all of the fl- frameworks were kind of flaky and young and there wasn't a real equivalent of Rails for Node.js at the time. I don't think there is even an equivalent of Rails for Node.js now. So, so you're building on something that is, is, fairly exper- is, is, is a fairly big corpus of knowledge with a whole bunch of gems that can help you out. And what other options really are there? You'd be able to do Perl maybe, but you've still Python. Those are about it. Yeah. I mean, cool. if, if, if we're going to be honest, Jeff, he still really likes C Sharp. And, uh, I mean, he, he likes the language that he's the most familiar with. But he knew from day one that that wasn't going to fly for creating an open source project. He's like, it's just mm. the ecosystem around, like, .NET open source is just nowhere near as good as it is for, you know, uh, yeah. Ruby or Python. Yeah. So And, so and the that was, internet served on Linux boxes, right? That's so true. The technology that is friendly to Linux. Uh, and to have all of those kind of Linuxisms built into the language properly, like forking and whatnot. If, you, if you're dealing with .NET, all of that's like second class. It's built for Windows. Those concepts aren't there. Yeah. I mean, signals, forking, uh, et cetera. Mono is not nearly as kind of pervasive as Ruby is uh, on, on the Unix, on the Linux desktop. So, so you kind of touched on this, but uh, you, you mentioned that there's this vibrant community since Discourse has gone open source, are you seeing a lot of Rails developers contribute and help you make it better? Oh, definitely. The vast majority of our contribution is actually in the uh, Rails department on the Rails code. Uh, we'd like to get more JavaScript contribution, but you know, it's taking a while. There are developers that have been doing Rails now for years and years, and very few have been doing Ember for more than a few months. So it's yeah. a lot harder to find the Ember developers to contribute as opposed to the Rails ones. Yeah. And also the, the, the Rails develop, the Ruby developers are very, very passionate. <laughs> stuff, stuff has to be a certain way and tests need to be written a certain way and patterns need to be used in a certain way. So I, I love bringing, you know, opinion and cleaning up all of the code. That's something that, you know, we'll accept pull requests that, you know, definitely improve on stuff. So if it's, you know, Avdi was talking about, you know, you replaced a map uh, with a pluck, you know, that, those kind of things, you know, where the code gets simpler and easier to understand, easier to maintain. We, we, love, we love those pull requests. Yeah. We also love feature requests and, and we get a little bit of everything. We've had to push back on some style-only changes. Uh, sometimes people will come in and see a few hash rockets somewhere and say, no, we want to use Ruby 193 syntax and we're a Ruby 
193 project up. Uh, and we're pushing back a little bit on style. We used to accept style uh, changes everywhere, but had a few kind of regrettable pull requests that we accepted. Uh, the, the white space one is the one that bothers <laughs> me most because mm-hmm. there are all these little hearts in our commit logs now that, you know, when you browse it on GitHub, you see these little hearts in all sorts of places where yeah. somebody decided to um, do that. And it really doesn't add much to the code. Yeah, I'll clean it. I'll clean up them. Uh, at the moment, I use Vim. That's my editor of choice, and I've got Trailer Trash plugin, and it always shows me when now there are tra- trailing spaces. So I'll clean them as I'm going through the files, but I won't kind of go and do a full sweep through the code base because that's kind of yeah. pointless. Yeah. Do you accept style changes if there is also a a a material change to the code? Yeah. Yeah, as soon as, there, as soon as there's a material change to the code, we accept that for sure. So there's there's the radar level to sneak under, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how it is. <laughs> Fix this typo and removed uh, 3,000 uh, trailing white space <laughs> Oh, yes, yeah. yes, that'll work. <laughs> what about... Um, I, I, I would accept that. Are you ready <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> what about... Um, you mentioned there were some uh, regrettable pull requests. What did you bring in that... Uh, that they you wish you had thought twice about. Well, we haven't had to revert very much, but I think the pull request Sam was talking about was one that just changed white space in like dozens of files or maybe hundreds of files, and they put an emoticon in the commit message, and because of that, now when you look at GitHub, you know how whenever a directory, whenever if you look at a file folder or even a file that's had a commit underneath it, it always has the commit message there. So there's a heart. And this heart bothers us because it's like constantly look, laughing at us in the face every time we look at like our project directory because it's just all over the place for all these files and it catches your eye. So that's what he was talking about. That's yeah, that's about it. <laughs> I wouldn't say I've got, I've got a big list of pull requests that I regret. Uh, in general, like vast majority of pull requests we accept and we don't regret. Uh, yeah. So, And it's a great opportunity as well as a, as a contributor to learn a bit. Uh, I was like, I got a, an email a few months ago about somebody who was asking, can, can you mentor me? I want to mentor. And, and, then I, and then a few months later, I'm looking at the pull request and you know, you are doing a little bit of mentoring when you're accepting pull requests. You should do this a little bit better. This is maybe a better idea. This is the reasoning. You can learn a lot as somebody new to open source or new to contributing to open source just by submitting these pull requests and us stepping in and saying, yeah, this is why we do it this way or this is why we can't accept it if there's something going on there. And I actually learn from people who submit code to me because they they, like to us because they say like, oh, why didn't you do it this way? And I'm like, because I didn't know you could do it that way. (laughs) I have a question. Every exchange I've ever had with James. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. That's every exchange I have with everybody else. It's like, uh, you know, it's funny. People always think, oh, my gosh, you're an idiot. And it's like, yeah, you're right. I'm an idiot. Thanks for teaching me something. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you have to leave your ego. If you're running a big open source project, you you better chuck your ego somewhere else and forget about it. Yeah. If you have, uh, th- that's, I think, the death of a lot of open source projects is, you know, a big dictator with bunches of ego and he'll never accept anything unless it was yeah. his idea or yeah. his style or whatnot. Well, it's I, like, what, if you come from, like, uh, a, a corporate community or a closed source thing, you're not necessarily used to sharing your code with tons of people. In yeah. a way, it's kind of like bearing, like, 
going out there naked or something. It's like, look, <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is me. This is me. I have faults. There's like a mole there on my leg. You know, I know it's there, but you know, this is it. The software works, and this is we're gonna try and make it better. You know. Can I, I ask really quickly about performance? Because I I know that that was something that actually, came up. Before you go there, okay. Chuck, can I can I ask an, uh, another sure. community question? So I'm looking at the discourse uh, page on GitHub right now, and I, I think it's very telling. You you guys have 160, 176 contributors right now. You only have eight open pull requests, um, and there's what four of you working on this? Yeah, uh, yeah. So you have 1,654 forks of discourse. Is it common for people to fork the repo in order to stand up their own copy of it? Or um, well, is there, there just that much dissent? I think most of those forks are people who are working on pull requests to submit them to us. Like, uh-huh. I know of a few, we know, like, Sam actually can speak to this in a minute, but, like, there are a few people out there who fork Discourse because they wanted to do their own, like, login provider or something like that. Uh-huh. But as far as I know, no one's been, like, I'm forking this project because I just have a fundamental disagreement with it. And if they, if they have, I haven't heard about it. Yes, yeah, Sam. I haven't heard of that. That that is not something that happens. I, I think the uh, the majority of them are just people that are just you know click the fork button and see what happens. Yeah, I forked uh, it today just so I could you know go after one of those files that uh, Code Climate didn't like. And, awesome. Uh, and yeah, it. I hope it'll turn into a pull request, but you know it. I'll be coding for a while. I've got to learn your code base first. Yeah. And uh, talking, learning the code base, one thing that I guess hurted us early on, we were in a huge rush to kind of get this out, and we introduced specs a little bit later than you normally would, <laughs> just because there was this massive rush to do prototype after prototype and get something out there and, yeah. and look at it. And we didn't have really the, the, the tooling around, and then we introduced specs, and now we have a, a reasonable spec suite. I'd say we've got 2,700 specs for Discourse. Uh, and a lot of them are testing multiple things. It's it's a really well-tested code base. But uh, to get to the state where we are today, it took um, a bunch of changes as well to to, to the whole attitude towards testing, which yeah. uh, for me were, it was very interesting. At some point, testing for me became really, really painful. And we used um, Guard to run our tests mm-hmm. and... For some reason, for me, the, the workflow just never worked. So I'd forget to run guard, and then I'd run guard, and then I'd be waiting three minutes for guard to finish running, and guard would finish running, and then it could run the spec that I had to run. And, it, and I'd just be waiting constantly for the spec, spec suite. And it's not, and it's not that there was some sort of big technical reason, except that guard didn't really work for my workflow well. Mm-hmm. So a few months ago, uh, I came up with a way of kind of we created a test runner. It's if you run Rake Auto Spec, uh, it'll, it'll it'll run the specs, and it's very very smart. It'll like abort very long test runs. So if it starts mm-hmm. running all of the specs, and then you just start editing a spec file and save it, it knows that yeah, it's time to interrupt the specs. We run this one spec for you. And uh, then it'll keep running these specs until they pass as well. So if you kind of fail a spec by saving it and then go and start editing around the project to try and fix that spec, it'll detect that and run that one failing spec, not a hundred of them. So there's a matter of fidelity that it caught that fidelity of running the spec. But once that that was in place, it's like for me now, I I can't even think about writing something without the specs because it's just so much easier. 
Yeah. It's so much easier just to come in and write these three specs and to kind of boot up the website and go to the pages and look and see if it worked. And well, you're leaving something behind as well, which is awesome. A lot of people like who I've heard, I guess maybe who haven't fully bought into testing or, or that experience with it, like think that it's slower than mm-hmm. you know hitting save and refreshing a page. But like I think what a lot of people don't understand is that it can actually often be much, much faster than ever going to a browser and hitting refresh, even if yeah. your page refreshes fast. Yeah. So it's like, why not yeah, do it? It's the big test runs that are killing people, I think. You know, if you've got a test run that's taking three minutes to run, and and you're constantly waiting for those three minutes. That's where this kind of all falls apart. Yeah, three minutes is nothing for based on the places that I've yeah. worked too. Like twenty, I've seen twenty, thirty minute runs. You know, the other yeah. thing is is that it tests everything. So if you're dealing with something that's kind of deep in the code, you can't test every place that that touches with a single refresh. And so there's sure. that aspect as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It was interesting. GitHub did something interesting with their their test suite recently. I think Amun worked on it, and uh, they heavily parallelized it. So now that that is a, a test suite that took twenty five minutes to run, and now they're running it on a sixty four core machine. <laughs> they can get it to run in under a minute, which nice. was very interesting. Nice. So there there are lots of very cool things going on in the community around testing as well. If you know where to look. Guard are looking at adding, uh, I guess for the listeners around, uh, I know Guard are looking to add APIs to enable the style of specking, uh, of testing that uh, Ray Cotospec does. They're actual missing bits of the API to allow for these interruptions and, and whatnot during a run. So, so that's something to keep an eye on. And if anybody's looking to contribute to Guard, I'm sure they're looking for people to help with Guard 2.0, which is going to come out at some point. Like- Unfortunately, AutoSpec is a little tied to our project right now, isn't it? Yeah, and it's going to become a little bit tighter as well if we do the JavaScript test. Yeah, because right right now we do QUnit either on the command line with the full suite or in a in a web browser, which is how I often do it. Which is again is not the best. So can can you actually do a full code coverage or whatever whatever code coverage level you have of your JavaScript? Can you do that headless? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to spend some days just playing with your project just to learn how you did that. That is awesome. Yeah, actually, when you run the QUnit, well, a lot of the QUnit tests are uh, like uh, unit tests or you know slight like controller tests and stuff like that. But we have a we have a bunch of integration tests, and the cool thing about that is if you run it in a browser, in the bottom corner, you get a little like you can actually see the website running in a minimized like zoomed out version, and you can see it clicking on things and stuff like that while it runs yeah. it. And that runs totally headless as well. It's part of our um, Jenkins build process. Like okay. we, we can't deploy unless that works. Yeah. And uh, we use, uh, I guess it's driven by PhantomJS, which is an awesome yeah. project that everybody should know oh, about. Yeah. Phantom is so cool. So can I ask my performance question now? Or Sure. Yeah. So I, I read the one thing about the GC malloc limit that, yeah. that did a whole bunch of stuff. I kind of get the idea there. I guess what my question is, is you're pushing a lot of data around in order to make these forums work. I mean, uh, just on the parlay list, we have several hundred people on there. Um, so how is it that you make all of this, you know, work and, and respond so quickly? Are there certain <laughs> tricks that you're, you're using? I mean, 
Uh, well, we use that's Ruby a huge question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, everybody it knows the common like caching and eager loading and things like that. But so yeah, we use we use Redis. Redis is our cache, and um, we build on it. We've done a lot of work around improving Rails performance and Active Model Serializer performance as well to make sure that it works well for us. Because uh, that's our front end. Our front end is like little JSON payloads, and we need to make sure that we generate them really, really fast. Uh, we Pretty much on Ruby 2.0, we moved to Ruby 2.0. So we've been really early adopters of uh, technology at Discourse. And now we're uh, running the latest patch level uh, of Ruby 2.0, which actually I'd recommend now. It it was harder to recommend patch level 0 because there were certain seg faults that happened, uh, which were nasty. But now that uh, it's gone through a few releases, I think Ruby 2.0 is awesome and there's no reason not to use it. I agree, uh, it's very good, but you do need to be on the cutting edge release. I had I ran into a bug with keyword arguments just the other day and I was only one version behind. So wow. <laughs> we we've actually for the record, we we actually still run on one nine three. Yeah. Uh, so we don't use two point specific syntax yet. Hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, we can't can't really because uh, we want uh, discourse to be adopted in lots and lots of places, so we can't really place the barrier too high. And I'm not saying we'd go down and allow 187, but yeah, I mean, 193 is reasonable. It's a supported release. Yeah, I think it's reasonable that the core team's end of life 187, so, you know, I don't think there's any anything to be gained by going there. But we certainly recommend 2.0 for production because it's very fast, especially with yeah. the GC tuning. Yeah. And a lot of the way that we got to the speed that we did on the server side was uh, extensive profiling with Rack Mini Profiler. Uh, I spent a lot of time looking at flame graphs. Um, I've even monkey patched bits of uh, Rails in in some spots to make sure that it works well for us. Uh, a couple of really interesting examples are um, we we deliver a ton of assets on in Dev, uh, so. You know, there'd be 200 assets, 200 little JS and CSS files that you need to deliver to the browser very, very quickly. And in general, the way that that works on on a Rails project is that uh, it has to walk the middleware stack, reach the router, and then it'll deliver that file. And walking the middleware stack is something you can take, you know, 5, 10 milliseconds in dev and multiply that by the 200, 300 assets, and then a refresh of a page on Discourse in mm-hmm. Dev used to take like four and a half seconds or five mm-hmm. seconds. And that is a killer as a developer. You know, why do I have to wait five seconds just to refresh mm-hmm. the page? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wrote a little, a little bit of middleware that um, just sits in the front of the middleware stack, and it checks to see if the JavaScript or CSS file didn't change. It'll just um, tell it, look, it didn't change, and it doesn't have to walk the whole stack. I've got an open kind of request with um, Rails to decide if we want to accept that kind of middleware stack into into Rails proper for dev mode. I think it's reasonable now that all of these um, massive client side libraries are coming about. Yeah. That mm-hmm. you know people want to deliver a lot of assets really quickly in dev. Otherwise, you're stuck doing the the standard thing that happens in a lot of teams is that they reach this problem and they go okay we'll give up on having files and we'll just um, have one big file that we'll deliver back from, from Rails even in dev. So they concatenate in dev as well. Yeah, which you turn on, there's the flag, which I think is really oddly named debug, 
like I think it means debug assets, and it really means do you want to concatenate your assets? Right. And most like front end MVC developers that I know like always turn that on because even though Rails is one of the best platforms, I think for like even though it's not by default like Turbo Links is the default, it's still one of the best platforms for doing these kind of like web API JSON applications. But like it's a really nonsensical default when you have hundreds of files. Like the asset yeah. pipeline makes it easy to have so many files, but then it makes it really slow in development mode. Yeah, so, there's a kind of a long-term vision on the asset pipeline of moving to uh, source maps, and source yeah, maps yeah. will kind of sol- solve this problem as well. I'm just not that convinced it. that it's. I'm not, not convinced that we're going to see source maps on the desktop like in Rails releases for a while now. Because um, an example would be that Sprockets in in Rails uh, three is sitting at a year old version. And, you know, they've got a version lock for a year-old version of Sprockets and they're not upgrading because there was a release of Rails 3 that kind of was completely bust due to an upgrade of the asset pipeline. And we're like, nah, we're afraid now. We don't want to upgrade it anymore. Yeah. So so I don't see kind of us moving out of this world of kind of very, very slow front-end thing unless we we put something like that in place. So that was one example. So I have a question for you about you're in this wonderful position where we talk, well, it's a horrible position actually, but I'll lead up, I'll lead up to that. When you build a project, right, you find yourself doing a lot of DevOps, right? It's my job to deploy this. I built the thing. I, you know, I, I, I have to make it go. You are building a thing that other people have to deploy. And so you kind of are building, you are like the puppeteer of other people's DevOps. So you've got this monkey patch in Rails, and maybe Rails is going to adopt it at some point, but now you've got this mixed user base. Some of them are not running that version of Rails. Some of them will be. Some no, of them no, want- everybody. No, no, no. We, we ship a lock file. Uh, we, we ship, there's one, one ah. discourse out there. And, mm, okay. we, and, the, and it's locked to that. We're not going to just ship a gem file and let people uh, run AMOC. So, okay. but, okay. but that does open an issue that, you know, extensibility-wise, there's something that's been open in Bundler for very, very long, the ability to have what is called a secondary gem file. Uh-huh. And uh, occasionally, like, say, you pull up project and you want to just use pry, right, to, yeah. to edit it, but you don't want to have to mod- modify the gem file and gem file lock because then you're going to ha- be fighting merging upstream and whatnot for just your little pry gem that you wanted to bring in. Yeah. And for discourse, it's much, much worse because we want to build a platform that people can extend and some extensions are going to want to bring in gems and we need to check that that gem doesn't clash with our gems and we need to build it its own little lock file and whatnot. So, so that's going to be very interesting when we kind of reach that time where we just have to extend Bundler and make it work with our plugins because that, that is something that has been open for many, many years and Technically, yeah. Bundler can sort of allow for it. It's got like all of the ways of resolving these dependencies. It's just yeah. that untangling it and getting it to work is going to be tricky. Yeah. Okay. So you've you've end run the evil question that I had, but you addressed <laughs> the core question, right? Which is, how do you deal with it right now? Not. Nah, we just locked the version. There's no way to have a too new version of Discourse with a too old version of Rails. But yeah, there is this problem that's coming, right? That you are you're putting out a framework. And it's got to be compatible with other frameworks because it depends, it depends on them. Yeah, which the way we kind of deal with that is that we're constantly deploying. So if we upgrade mm-hmm. our dependencies, we'll be deployed within 
uh, a few hours and we will check that in production and watch our error logs and we'll make sure that everything is good. Yeah, and we've got yeah. a test suite to protect us. Uh, and we're also doing forward-looking uh, forward work. For example, if you look at our gem file, it's very, very interesting. You'll see a bunch of patches to, to gems there. It's, it's, it's a fascinating little thing to look at. Inspired by right some, work that, some work that New Relic did, I think, when they were um, doing an upgrade from Rails 2 to Rails 3. So they, they, they had this multi-boot thing where you could boot up your project either in Rails 2 or Rails 3, and that allowed people to kind of start working on the Rails 3 upgrade without uh, interfering with the Rails 2 work that was going on. So we've got the same going on with Rails 3 and 4. So we've got a few people that are kind of contributing and working on getting Rails 4 working on Discourse, mm -hmm. but that's not blocking us, and we don't need to have a fork, and we don't need to merge that fork all the time. You can just work on the Rails 4 stuff with the official Discourse rep repository and submit Rails 4 fixes now, which is great. I want to hark back a second to uh, a kind of a platform that people can extend. Have you built any of that? Is, is it extensible right now other than through maybe Rails engines? Well, since uh, yeah, since day one, we've had like a plugin, like a series of example plugins in the vendor directory, like you said, as engines that you know plug in. So the emoticon support, for example, now that's not on every Discourse site, but it's actually vendored in, and you could turn it off if you want, and it knows how to plug into the JavaScript and the server side for the rendering pipeline as well. But uh, in the future, we want to make it so that people can selectively say, "I want Discourse," like install all the gems, and then also I want these extensions to Discourse that do these various things to customize it to my experience, and that's what's really tricky. Yeah. Is that at the be... moment, I'm working on, I'm working on some, of, uh, some extension to the plugin system to allow for... I think the, the big issue with, with plugins is that they have to be super simple, because if it's really complicated to extend your system, then nobody's going to do it. And I think that you know, requiring people create a gem and then deal with the merges of their lock file is just a bit too much because it's scary to have mm -hmm. to do that. And uh, Rails engines are awesome, but they're also, um, they're also a complicated construct that often people don't want to have to think about that. They just want to say, yeah, just give me this JS file, give me this CSS file and be done with it and just put that in a little file and, and have their extension work and a good example of that is WordPress, the way they do ex extensions. You know, it's just you edit one file and you're up and running. And I'm working on some prototypes at the moment of that style of extensibility. So you can just, you know, edit a .rb file and suddenly have that extend discourse. Some people want discourse itself to be an engine, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah. Like it's just so, it's such a big application. Like, yeah. I can't imagine just plugging it into part of another site. So while we control everything like that, we don't have to worry necessarily about fitting it into other versions of Rails you know, that, that don't run the whole site as one container. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. And you can yeah. go ahead and deploy it under Passenger or what have you as a subdomain or a sub-URI and just make it work that way. Yeah, yeah, the subdomain stuff is tricky. It's been very, very hard for us to get subdomain stuff working perfectly. I, we, we try, but it's one of those features that unless you're using all the time, you're just going to miss all sorts of spots and nobody uses it. So it worked oh, for a while. Oh, I don't oh know you're, talking about, you're talking about subfolders, right, Sam? Yeah, yeah. 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 Like deploying discourse under www.mysite uh, slash forum, uh, yeah. I guess, would be an example. Yeah. And, I just, and that I just is, went through that and 
I actually had a sysadmin guy uh, help me out with that, and he's he's one of my picks. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's painful. Yeah, it's not easy, and it's so easy to create a little subdomain anyway, like a, a, a discuss dot domain dot com. That, yeah, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure if that effort yeah. is really warranted. Yeah, in a lot of cases. Well, this is this is, I guess, one problem with having a site that has, or an application that has so many options, is that you know, there's the set that we like and that we use all the time. You know, we dog food those, but there's some settings that other people use that we don't really, and it's hard for us to make sure those are constantly working. You know, beyond mm-hmm. unit tests in the office, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been dancing pretty close to this. I found a page that says that you guys do multi-site stuff, so yeah. yes. you you can effectively stand up an application and then say. Yeah, I'm running Discourse, but I want like four forums running on this same application, and it'll just work. And yes. I thought that was pretty awesome. I, I'm a little bit curious, though, how much extra work was it to get something like that hooked up? I'd say it was a uh, lot, wasn't it, Sam? I don't know. I don't know. The The thing is, uh, you, if you do it early enough, then it's not such a huge problem. Well, now uh, we know the, who did all the work on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's There's... Um, there's one gem that does it called Apartment, which is reasonably popular, but I found it had a bug with Sidekick. Uh, we, we need Discourse to work multi-threaded, so not only do we want to be able to serve different sites uh, from the same um, process, we want to be able to write spin threads and run each thread as a different site, which is very, very tricky. So there was actually a bug in Rails 3 that I got patched in Rails 4, that I monkey patch <laughs> in discourse to get that to work. So the the vast majority of the difficulty was actually debugging through to figure yeah. out, you know, where 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 are the issues, where are the holes, where to inject the middleware to make all of this magic happen. But once but the actual code, uh, if you look in the vendor directory, there's a multi-site gem that does that that is reusable. Uh, and 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 the code there is not there's not that much code. It's pretty straightforward what it does. But then everything needs to be aware of this uh, concept of a multi-site. So we've got a messaging bus that um, delivers information back to the clients and delivers information between all of our processes. So, for example, if you get a new notification in Discourse, it'll just pop up magically for you. And the API is trivial. You know, you just go... uh, Tell Bob that there's a new message and then it just shows up. It gets a call back on the... In, in JavaScript to say that that happened. So all of that needs to be aware of multi-site as well, and you don't want to leak information into the wrong site. Well, that, that's what was hard, right? Like, yeah. the, fir- the first version was up and running pretty fast. It was, like, it was more like we found that it was leaking over time, but I think now it's really solid, isn't it? Like, yeah, it is pretty solid. I haven't, I haven't seen anything leak in ages, so I think we've, I think we've nailed down all the, uh, the areas. So the, another thing that I... I, I'm hearing you talk about multi-threading, and that's not something that we've really... We're, we're just kind of starting to get into this with Rails. Did you find that making Rails thread-safe or making some of the processes that you run thread-safe was was tricky at all? Like only, we, only for the multi-site stuff. That was the only yeah. part that I saw that it was tricky. We're, we're very it's... careful not to have too much global state sitting around that's going to be... We're going to be fighting about... We, we've been running Sidekick for a really long time, like even well before we launched. And I think that that forced us to make sure that any of our components, at least that we were using in that respect, worked in a threatened environment. Yeah. Which, which Ruby are you running? Are you running MRI or are you running something else? 
No, MRI. we're running MRI. Okay. MRI. Do you, do you use um, celluloid? Just, is it, yeah, no, I was going to say, do you use a threaded server like uh, Puma? I think it is. Is that uh, well? Uh, it's there's a long history to this, but. Uh, we launched on Thin, and we're using Thin at the moment. And the reason is because this messaging bus has long polling, uh, meaning that you can open a connection back to the server and wait for it to come back with the results and just hang there. So we could have like now like 10,000 sessions out there connected to discourse waiting to be notified about stuff. And to get that to work back at the time, the only option was Thin. Now, wow, that's, uh, that's Thin and Rainbows... Thin and rainbows, but kind of rainbows, I don't know if it's gotten the popular, much popularity. But since uh, Rack 1.5 came out and it introduces something called Rack Hijack, and that allows you to hijack a socket. And I've built um, the messaging bus now has the ability to work under, uh, under Rack Hijack mode as well. And that is supported uh, across a lot of servers. So Puma will support Rack Hijack. Uh, Passenger supports it, and uh, Unicorn supports it. Uh, Now, there are two interesting caveats here. One is that Unicorn is a very, 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 very compliant web server, and uh, Rails decided to lock the Rack version to 1.4 up in Rails, so 1.5 won't boot. So Unicorn will actually check that when it when it boots up and disable Rack Hijack if they're claiming to be a Rack 1.4 app. Now, on the other hand, Puma won't do that. They're a lot more forgiving there. So Puma will work with Rack Hijack. And Passenger, unfortunately, has a bug. At, as we're recording, it has a bug. I don't know how long it'll be there because Hongli's working on it, where it supports Rack Hijack, but it doesn't work. Like it, 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 Even though you hijack a, a socket, it still holds up one of the um, spots in the load balancer. So you just get stuck in 10. But with Rack Hijack, I've tested locally, and I can easily have, you know, uh, on my dev box, you know, 5,000 connections, sleep for two seconds, and serve everything back within, like, five seconds. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. So I want to hear a little bit more about this message bus, because it sounds, it sounds complicated. <laughs> You know, the tricky thing about the message bus is, you know, having having a delivery that's reliable, and having something that'll scale. So, the design of the the, the discourse messaging bus is it's a polling message bus that stores no state. So, whenever each client comes, it says, "Look, I'm interested in these channels, right?" And every request where it's asking the server for information will always tell it all of the channels it's interested in. So then the server doesn't need to like hold state for that client beyond that one request because it can just throw everything away and it can share a bunch of state. So, so that design scales really well. It uses Redis uh, to ensure that all of the messages are in the, the, that are delivered are delivered in order. So there is an issue, I guess, with a lot of um, – that a lot is unreliable on the web. Like you can do all of these tests and everything's pristine – but once you start introducing clients and, you know, somebody will ask for something and then halfway through never get the message back and you have to handle those kind of situations. Uh, so we have this message bus has like a global ID that's constantly increasing and you can always catch up to any messages that you missed. Meaning that if you close the laptop and then open the laptop an hour later, it'll still be able to catch up. That's cool. We don't, that's awesome. we don't currently do that though, do we? Sam? No, no, like we if- do that. 
We do that. Like, so if I get a new message like on the front end and the number pops up and then I miss it, it'll come later? Yeah, yeah it'll come, it'll oh, come cool. later. Whenever, yeah. It's all See, I didn't even know that. So yeah, so that's built on Redis and it's built on Rack as well and it's an MIT um, gem. So anybody can kind of use this in a Sinatra app if they want or in a Rails app, uh, which is pretty cool. What is that gem called, Sam? It's called Message Bus. Oh, there you go. I'm surprised yeah. that wasn't already taken. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> the the other the other one, if people are looking and shopping around for these kind of solutions, um, what's the other one? Fay. Uh, Fay, right. yeah. Fay is the other 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 famous one for doing this kind of stuff. We, right. we just choose a slightly different approach. Uh, it also has, I think, a Redis backend. I don't think it has uh, what we call a, a Redis um, uh, reliable channel where it can kind of recover and reorder and make sure that everything comes there. There's a very interesting test that I have inside the message bus that like forks 30 processes and starts hammering kind of the bus with messages from everywhere and makes sure that they all come back. So those kind of things, I don't think Faye is, is worrying about solving at the moment. So uh, we talked about this in the pre-call, but I noticed that you guys have a code climate badge on your uh, front page, on your README. And this is the first code. I, I just want to tell for, tell for the readers that they have a crappy GPA. Uh, they, these guys are awful. Uh, <laughs> You've got a B minus GPA barely by by the floating point epsilon two point six seven is the minimum for a B minus GPA. Um, now, to be fair, seventy percent of the files have a straight up four point A, but you've got files that are flunking. You've got files that are C's and D's, and I am fascinated by this. I'm very excited by this because this is the first code climate uh, report card I've seen that hasn't been a boring straight. Four, look at me, I've got straight four four all the way across the board. So. I wanted to ask you guys, how much do you use Code Climate? Um, how does it help you? Does it help other people? Um, why? How do you explain this, young man? Uh, well, do you think most people like only put them up if they have a straight A? Like, do you think it's that kind of thing? <laughs> I don't know. No, like, probably. I think it's, we rock. Well, I want to be clear. We didn't actually add that. That was a pull request, like day one. Someone added awesome, it. and we ex- and we accepted it, and because uh, I'm like, hey, this is cool. It shows people where to look, and I actually think it's helped contributions a fair bit. Like, because there's we've got a lot of them which are like, I decided I don't know your project, but I want to. I just opened Code Climate and I found an F, and I'm like, hey, I can do better. And then uh-huh. here's what I did. I broke it up into these functions. All your tests still pass, and like we've got a lot of requests like that, and it's been really yeah. good. It's it's I so. I do notice that that I I forked the project just so that I could jump in on one of the failing one of the big red F files and we and love almost, that it's almost like yeah. a hey jump in here kind of keyword it's awesome yeah, yeah we spend I, I try to spend a bit of time refactoring and you know a lot of the mess I created obviously so you know I, I want it cleaned up mm-hmm. I, I want to be careful about not over decomposing stuff because occasionally sure. um, Code Climate can encourage that like create. 70 functions where one slightly longer function would have still made sense and now right. you've got something so decomposed that you have no idea what's going on. We're, we're not uh, ever going to reuse any of the parts of this, so let's not make 70 different reusable parts out of it. Yeah. 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 Which is, it's a tricky balancing act. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at some point you've, you've gone beyond what you should be doing in, in one function and it, mm-hmm. it should be broken down. Uh, yeah. A lot of discourse has kind of been, you know, 
Jeff driving, we need these features, we need these features, we need these features. And a lot of times when you're dealing with pipeline stuff or topic stuff, you know, the, the natural thing to do is just to look at where, you know, this bit of the pipeline is and just introduce some new functionality in there. And a lot of times you just kind of omit creating a function, which mm -hmm. you probably should have. So it's good that Code Climate is there keeping us a little bit more honest. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's definitely helping a lot break this down. And like I, better. there's definitely parts of the code that I'm not happy with, but it's it's a pretty big code base, you know. And uh, I mean, the worst thing you can do is assume that we want it to be that way, you know, or that we're proud of it or something like that. Sure, no, like sure. We're, we're totally happy to have requests anytime to improve that. And uh, no, we like we know that it needs to be fixed and, and worked on. So, well, let me let me put a positive spin on that and actually put words in your mouth. This is why I find your report card so interesting. Tell me some feature or some trade-off that you have made that you're happy with. I, I, I'm not going to ask you to say you're happy that you got an F or that you got a D on a, on a file, but is there something that you had a choice between polishing this rivet from a B to an A or from a D to a C, but instead you were able to use that time to ship something else? Is there, is there an example of that that you've found as you've developed? Wow, that's daily. I mean, we've got a whole bunch of <laughs> If all we were doing right was working from F to A, then that's all we'd be doing. And uh, I'd imagine that there's months of work to take this, you know, to A everything. So it's every day, you know, we're making that decision that we have to build new things. We have we refactor as we can. We improve as we can. Uh, I guess the goal is whenever you go into a bit of code, try and leave it a little bit better than uh, yeah. when you got in there. Yeah. I think that's a great strategy to take as a developer, and we're constantly learning, which is awesome. Uh, there, there are some things that I find are pretty much unfixable. For example, we have a little DSL that we define for site settings, so each site can have a bunch of settings that it has, yeah. and there's a DSL there, and the DSL is just not, Code Climate doesn't like the DSL. But the DSL is perfectly readable. Like when you look at the file and you say, oh, yeah, this, this makes sense. There's nothing really that I'd like to change here. So, uh, Sam, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. You told me that in the, in the pre-call, so I've been kind of staring at that file for a while. And to me, that feels like stuff that could be in some kind of um, configuration file or something like that. Do you not think? Yeah, but I mean, the configuration file can be a .rb file, right? There's nothing really stopping that. Like why, why uh, yeah, sure. I think I, it could, but since it's just key value or something like that, I think there's maybe even better choices. I think. You know, if we move it to YAML, Code Climate won't grade it. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> the solution is hide the evidence. <laughs> in, like, a way, in a way, though, I think that's right, though. So anyways, it's a great challenge for the listeners. Like, uh, you know, go take a look. I'll put the link in the show notes to this. Uh, the model is... Um, uh, site setting, uh, you know, and, and uh, go take a look at it. See if see if somebody out there has a great idea of cleaning it up. And uh, I I think there I think there's maybe some untapped options there. But you know, while we could joke that it's hiding it in in YAML, I, I would say it's it's maybe moving configuration data out of the code, right? Which which is actually a viable thing to do, I think. Can live in the config directory as opposed to living in your models, which right. is fair enough. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, I would. I think I would be happy to accept a pull request like that. I mean, assuming yeah. it, 
it works properly. Assuming is all the functionality remains, you know, as, yeah. as long as they don't yeah. like kind of tie us in a corner where we can't do things because of that. It's amazing, I think, how little we're like actually like sold on, like that we'd be like, no, we wouldn't change. Like most of the time, if something's like an improvement, we're happy to take it in. Yeah, I was so. trying to get you guys to fight to the death. I'm really disappointed with how quickly. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know some parts are bad, and that's just it's just room for improvement, and we're we, you know we do our best. Like Sam said, it's like I, I don't think it's like usually like a conscious thing. Like, oh my god, I have to get this feature out. There's no time to polish it. It's like it's like these things kind of add up over time, and you know, there's there's many reasons why you might create some code that is not ideal, and if you just spent all day polishing it, you just you wouldn't ship anything. Yeah. Do you ever, as as the senior, I mean, so as junior developers coming in who want to get into open source, this is a great place. The Code Climate will tell them, and I don't mean to be just pimping. Co- Wait, aren't, isn't Code Climate one of our sponsors? I'm totally yes. fine pimping. <laughs> you guys need to be using it. It's fantastic. But um, no, the point is, is that this is a great place for junior developers to come in, and this is—it's it, like a jump in here tag. You know, here is where you can start. Please help us fix this. Do you guys, as the senior devs, devs and the guys who know all this stuff, do you ever kind of sit back and go, you know, I just need some Zen personal time. I'm just going to pull up Code Climate and make something better. I do that occasionally, especially I, I, uh, messes that I've created. Yeah, I think I think maybe the one thing I would say, and I've listening to you talk, I mean, I definitely agree that you can't spend all your time improving and not shipping stuff. But on the flip side, I really feel like we sometimes undervalue the the gain from improving something like that. I mean, when we have to go back and, and maintain it every time, every time you have to dip into that stuff and you think, ah, I don't have time to fix this part right now. Yeah. You're, pay- you're paying a price, right? No, that, and- that's. I think that's a great point, and that's a time when you should be cleaning it up. I, I think there's. I think that's the best kind of approach to take. Is that you're going ah again? I have to deal with this huge function. I don't understand what it's yeah. doing. Just clean it at that point. The 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 flip side is going and cleaning up a file that you're just not necessarily going to look at that much, or isn't that important, yeah. and you know is not really part of your focus at the moment. You're not thinking yeah. about solving these problems at the moment. So I think a lot is about the timing of when to do it and sure. and when I, to clean these things up. I find personally from a time management point of view that like it's much easier when you have to go into that file to add a new feature to also clean it up while you're in there. Yes. It's yeah. so it just like yeah, cuz cuz you you're 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 already dedicating your brain power to reunderstand how that class works to add the new feature. Yeah. So while you're in there you might as well tidy. So I like I find that I personally rarely will just say, "Oh, I'm going to do an F today and take it to an A." But when yeah. I know I have to go in there, that's when I'll do it. And that's part and of we my hard coded workflow too. Big challenges with like big models, like that's something that it, that, that we're struggling with a bit. Like we've yeah. looked at separating bits of kind of responsibility and functionality out of some of our big models, like the user model or the topic model. The but there's too. a lot of yeah, there's a lot of logic in there. And it's very hard for us to figure out, like, what is the right way of untangling this? Um, both so Code Climate will be happy, but more importantly, that so we can maintain it and stuff is in the right spot. Well, and that's, yeah. So that's, that's the place we need help. That's where a lot of the good refactoring comes in and a lot of the things that Code Climate is trying to push you toward is recognizing where the edges are, where the boundaries are, where the seams uh, between different areas of functionality Go and if you just go in and and blindly refactor it so that you get a lower complexity score, you you may break it up at the wrong place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think that's true. I've been also kind of glancing through the topic model, and you know, it's it's not too surprising that it's kind of a god object because surprise, discourse revolves around topics. You know, yep. um, but yeah, uh, um, yeah. I, I think there's probably some um, some places to clean up there. One thing I've seen in there multiple times is um, methods that have the same prefix, like notify, 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 notify. You know, as, as a prefix. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's almost always a hint of an object that's trying to break out. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So we've, we've already been talking for about an hour and 15 minutes, and uh, so this is probably going to be one of our longer episodes. But I, I have a couple more questions, and one of them is, what are the things that you've learned while working on Discourse? Like, what are the big lessons for you guys over the last six or eight months or whatever? Wow, <laughs> the community is awesome. <laughs> now I've learned I've learned that, that I love working at open source. Really, uh, that's a lot of a lot of what I've learned is about the community and the way it it, it reacts. Like also the Amber community has been great, but just you know the way that it's hammered into you as a kind of enterprisey dev that you can't make changes and to be in discourse is just such been such a great opportunity to be able to kind of go and submit a patch here and a patch there to other projects and kind of be more of a active role, have a more active role in the community as opposed to just kind of floating and sucking on all of these projects and expecting them to work the way I want them. So uh, yeah. to me, that's been a big thing, learning about the community. Well, I listened yeah. to, a, to a talk from uh, Netflix a little while back, and they, they kind of put this idea in my head of one reason to throw your code out there is to affect the discourse, right? And I don't mean your app. I mean the discussion. But the, that by throwing it out there, I mean, this is a large open source Rails application that uses the heck out of Ember, and you know what I mean. And and you're you're changing the way people look at Rails applications just yeah. by throwing this out there, you know. And and that's a, that's a cool thing, right? You can you can show people and say, you know what, Ember works for this kind of stuff. Here's how you mm-hmm. use it, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, and Rails scales. Rails can yeah. scale. <laughs> well, we all. We already knew that. I feel really lucky to work on open source too. I basically have the same answer as Sam. Like just today, I was like, I was waiting for the elevator in my building, and I'm like, I work on an open source project full time. Like, how many people are lucky enough to be in that position? Like, I recognize yeah. how fortunate I am and how awesome it is. Like just yesterday, I released like a little micro library for benchmarking Ender, uh, sorry, Ember view performance under the MIT license. And what's great is like I didn't have to ask. You know, I, I just know that that's okay. Mm. I could just throw it out there. I and I can spend time working on it because it contributes to our project. It's just been a, like a really amazing experience. The other I'm thing jealous. I wanted to add, yeah, the other thing I wanted to add was that I think we are like it is interesting that we are. I, I believe we're probably the largest open source Ember app out there, uh, possibly one of the largest hmm. Ember apps in production, like out there. Period, which is pretty cool. But there's also not too many, and maybe you guys know more, but I haven't seen too many examples of large Rails apps too. We've got to be like uh, one of. There's Sorry? not. There's yeah, not. I agree with you. We've got to be one of the largest Rails apps too. Even if we're not using ERB for most of our views when we're doing JSON, we still have a like. We're still in a pretty awesome position that we're like one of these, you know, examples. Even though like our code climate isn't the greatest, we're working on it. And I think there's like it's a great opportunity to have an open source 
like uh, idiomatic Rails app out there that people yeah. can learn from. So, so, so when you say one of the larger Rails apps, do you mean of like of all time, or do you? No, mean no, no, no. Open, oh, open source. Open source. Open source. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we might, we, we, we might be one of the biggest. Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say for Ember, we might actually be one of the biggest, uh-huh. uh, like. Ember apps out there, but for Rails, no, there's no way. Like, yeah. you look at GitHub and all these other gigantic yeah. sites, yeah. no, but Groupon. for open source, yeah. yeah. But for open source, I believe that yeah. there's a good chance we're one of the biggest. You guys are yeah, sitting thanks. close to about 10,000 lines of code. Um, so you're in that ballpark. Um, your, your model directory has 7,800 lines of code in it, and um, that's a, you know, people come from .NET, you know, if it's not 100,000 lines of code, it's not a real app. <laughs> <laughs> but in in Ruby, where a single line of code can say a lot, that's that's yeah. a hefty that's a heavyweight app. It's pretty big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think actually, that might be one reason why our code climate isn't that good. To circle back, it's, it's actually fascinating because in Rack Mini Profiler we have a .NET port and we have a Google Go port and everything. And I was looking at the breakdown on GitHub, and it's like Ruby nothing. And actually, the <laughs> Ruby port of Mini Profiler has the most functionality of all of them. Yeah. It does more than every single one of the other mini profiler things out there. For example, Flame Graphs is something that's Ruby only, which yeah. is absolutely awesome that people should check out. But it's uh, unre- un- unrepresented statistically because it's like eight lines of code. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, it's so <laughs> it's Ruby, so you can just do it in seconds. Yep. Yeah. Now, is that due to, we were talking about the expressiveness of the language, but there are also some power features in the language. Uh, does that affect it too? Some of the capabilities the language has with metaprogramming and other things. There's that, and there's also that you're building on on very tight libraries that give you a bunch of functionality. Rack is awesome mm-hmm. uh, in in the power that it gives you, and a lot of times in lots of frameworks, you're just stuck doing what Rack does for free. Uh, yeah. Manually. Yeah, I I see the phrase monkey patch a lot, like in your gem file, and I'm just thinking. How many thousands of lines of code would this be in Java or .NET if you had to rewrite the whole class hierarchy oh, just yeah, to add exactly. a feature? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, massive. And that's the other thing: the the Google, um, the GitHub kind of representative of discourse is like it's mostly JavaScript, and there's uh, a segment of Ruby, but it's not that's counting wrong. all the Ruby gems, right? Yeah. So and, and, it's, and it's also counting all of the uh, uh, libraries like Ember.js and jQuery yeah. and whatnot, and they all add up. So you know, yeah. switch switch it over and get the real numbers, and it, and it'll actually be much more leaning towards mm-hmm. the Ruby side. Yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's closer to fifty fifty. The way it's displayed right now is like seventy five JavaScript, which is absolutely not true. So I have I have two more questions. I'm going to ask them both at the same time. And you can kind of take it where you want because they're kind of related. The first, the first question is, what is the hardest part of working on discourse? And the second question is, what's that part of the code where you kind of cringe when you have to go work on it? That's a good question. Let me think about that for a sec. <laughs> for me, I, for me, occasionally, uh, occasionally I struggle with Ember, and it's just natural. It's a young framework that is still going through a lot of change. The, the the optimistic part of me is that I can see a way out of a lot of these things. A lot of my issues that I have with Ember are kind of being resolved and being worked out. For example, it has this concept of metamorphs where it injects a whole bunch of stuff into the DOM that is not going to be there in a few versions of Ember. And the way that you set and get things, you have to do dot .get and dot .set all the time, uh, which really annoys the bejesus out of me. And that... Uh, is going to go away eventually as well as JavaScript progresses. 
so so for me that that's been like a bit of a a struggle as kind of coming online with ember and learning all of the bits and pieces of it and i'm sure that a lot of the community are kind of it's uh, it's way easier now than it used to be say a year ago but there's still plenty of i guess room to grow and to improve things there for the record, I, I'm the on the team. I'm the one who's like like adores Ember. You know, it's like it's my a baby. It's not my baby, but it's the thing that I really you know hold dear. So this is like one area where Sam and I you know butt heads a little bit. But uh, the thing for me, the, the the code path that I don't like is actually the rendering code path, which is one of the most complicated ones we have. You know, and when I say rendering, I mean rendering a post. Like when you're typing in a post, it does Markdown, it does BB code, uh, yeah, it inserts emoticons, difficult. it inserts like I don't. It has tons of rules, right? And we have all like it's all fairly well tested. Actually, I'd say it's one of the best tested parts, but it's still like. It's just like layers of like before you render, you do this, and after you render, you do this, and if there's a quote, you do this, and it's become very difficult. So every time like I have to jump into that text rendering pipeline, I kind of like yeah. I'm a little worried. <laughs> but and we have we, one on the server and one on the client, and you know the, it, yeah. it gets complicated. Well, actually, but it's yeah. most that's kind of one of the interesting parts uh, is that it actually is mostly the same code path, right? Like yeah. we we spawn it's we have it in JavaScript because we do a live preview as you type, but on the server side, we actually run it within um, what's it the called the Ruby Racer. The Ruby Racer. Yeah. To actually run the same rendering to make sure that people aren't, you know. Yeah, that's spoofing. something I learned at Stack Exchange that you're in for a world of pain if you're not using the same Markdown um, parser uh, yeah. on both sides. And speaking so, of Markdown parsers, there actually is light at the end of the tunnel for this rendering thing because there, there seems to be a much better JavaScript Markdown rendering library that we're going to consider swapping over to that will hopefully alleviate some of these concerns. I know it can't do all of them, but it'll it should help. Have, have you guys contributed as much to the JavaScript and Ember community as you have to the Ruby and Rails community? I don't know. That's that's hard to say. Like, I'm certainly active in the Ember community, and, you know, like, I released that view thing the other day, and we've done a lot of things like uh, profiling performance and creating the app, but I don't know that I've contributed as much to Ember as Sam has to say Rails. I don't think that's true. I, uh, I think but I think you need to look at contribution as like it's not just code. Like Robin blogs um, very very aggressively about all of these things, and you know if you put that as I, I think that's just as legit yeah, contribution as changing code inside Ember, and he's done tons of that. Like yeah, there's like almost, a, not a week that goes by that there's no <laughs> new. This is how you do this in Ember. This is how you do that. Yeah, I blog a lot about it, and I'm act- like I run the in Toronto the Ember JS. Uh, like I help run the meetup night and stuff like that, and I'll I'll talk about it whenever anyone ever wants me to talk. But so I'm active that way. But I have in terms of like actual contributions, I haven't done as many. But I have helped people debug things and come up with like uh, JS bin reports and stuff like that. But it's not exactly the same. All right. Well, any other questions, you guys? No. no I'm Where's this. Avdi? Where's Josh? <laughs> Uh, they uh, they had the night off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, to the listener, yeah. we're recording about, what, 10 hours out of sync from when we usually do? So Yeah, it's my fault. Australia's too far. <laughs> it is very far. Well, we get people from Europe. It's just too far in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we, we're, uh, we're really happy to have you on the show and Absolutely. really appreciate all the work that you're putting in, both in the Ruby and JavaScript communities as well as, uh, you know, in discourse itself. And uh, for those of you who don't know, we just switched the Parlay 
uh, mailing list over to Discourse, and it it's a whole lot easier to manage. And I think the discussions are really much better facilitated through With categories and everything. We are yeah. super excited about it. Yeah, it's awesome. it's wonderful. So, and please give us all your feedback so we can continue to improve it. You know, and pull requests as many as yeah. you want. Also, hey, we, pull requests. It turns out we have this mailing list of a bunch of Rails <laughs> hackers. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and I know that you guys have been getting some feedback, so uh, that that makes uh, there me was feel one, good too. There was one little question that they had. Why did we drop? I was just looking through the. We, we can quickly address some of the little questions that people had. Why, why did we drop IE and not support that? So we've been uh, discourse is a IE nine and up project. Uh, and that, and that, I think that was Jeff's call, and I completely agree with it. It's just the intention was to be a modern application, and yep. you just have to leave some of these things behind. IE8 has just a whole bunch of features that are missing uh, internally uh, that that just make a whole bunch of things in JavaScript a lot more complicated. And uh, even IE9 is just doesn't have um, push state properly, yeah. Uh, so you can't. Um, muck with the URLs, you're stuck using those hash URLs, which are a lot uglier and less correct. So that was a big reason that we dropped old IEs. I guess that was the one question there. So when yeah. when you're talking about dropping old IEs, does that mean that you're not testing it in the old IEs? Or? Uh, it won't work. It, it, it just, just won't work? It doesn't work in IE8. If you okay. try and launch Discourse in IE8 and below, it, you'll get a message saying, please upgrade to a modern browser, IE8 not supported. Yes. In fact, I have a I haven't committed it yet, but I have a pull request upgrade to the latest jQuery like 2.03 and I think it doesn't support IE8 anymore. Yes, wow. that's correct. 2.0 so, does not support <laughs> IE yeah, IE8 and lower. So, I think once assuming I can commit that safely, uh, I hope well I hope the warning message still works. That's it's a good note. I have to make sure that <laughs> I don't break that. Yeah, it was interesting that uh, I, I think the jQuery maintainers basically said that when they dropped the old IE support, all of a sudden there was more code to support Firefox, I want to say, than IE in jQuery. And they dumped a ton of code that crazy. was in there to compensate <laughs> for it. Just a crazy amount. So Wow. It's it's very interesting to hear you talk about it. Anyway, we're, we're getting toward the end of our time here, so uh, we should probably get into the picks. David, do you want to start us off? Sure, I'd be happy to. I keep a list of uh, things that I want to pick, and uh, this this is a very special pick for me. People listening to the previous episode know that we recorded it at the retreat, and I just want to go on record saying that my picks for today are Dana Gray and Mandy Moore. Uh, D. Gray and Ock on Twitter and the Ruby Rep on Twitter. Um, ladies, you saved us. The retreat could not have been possible, would not have worked anywhere near as well as it had. Dana literally went shopping. For, well, both of them went shopping for us. They cooked for us. I mean, it, it was fantastic to be able to have our minds clear and to be able to be focused and not have to worry about all the logistics of surviving at the retreat. And it would not have been possible without Dana and more. And so I just want to take airtime on our show, on our podcast, to all of our listeners to say that James's wife, Dana, and Mandy, who left her family at home for a week to come uh, hang out with a bunch of uh, nerdy hackers, 
thank you so much. You guys were absolutely fantastic at the, at the retreat. And the reason the retreat was so wonderful for all of us is literally because of you two. So thank you, Dana. Thank you, Mandy. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And, the, and the one time David almost died, neither of them were present. So that pretty much tells you. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, I actually had some picks, but I, I just want to pile on with Dave. I mean, it was it was a terrific experience, and and they really did make it happen. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I I can't really add much more than that. But but thanks, big thanks. Um, James, do you have some picks for us? I do. I've got a couple. We use a campfire setup at work. Uh, talking on a campfire, uh, we have a couple of uh, different rooms and stuff, and I've been just. Well, for a while I used the website, and then for a while I pulled it out into a Fluid app, and that was okay. Uh, But I actually wanted a little bit more, like the ability to switch rooms with keyboard shortcuts and stuff like that. Uh, I asked on Twitter, and several people turned me on to Flint app. It's in the App Store. It's a little pricey, but... um, uh, but you know, for low hassle, it's gorgeous. It uh, it has what I said: keyboard shortcuts to switch between rooms. Um, it uh, you know it has lots of customizable notifications and um, and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, I, I find that really helpful for Campfire. And then uh, while we were at the Rogues Retreat, um, we made awesome use of Josh's Jam Box uh, as we yeah. did multiple calls with uh, uh, Kent Beck and our publisher and, and uh, to talk about the book. And he had this awesome jam box. And then like right when I got back, I found myself needing almost the exact same thing for a, a local event, a kind of portable speaker uh, slash mic thing. And I went um, and found, uh, I, I didn't get a jam box, but I found a JBL Flip, uh, which is uh, real similar uh, in what it does. And uh, it gets good reviews, and, and I've used it once now locally, and it's just exactly what I needed. So if you need a, like, portable speaker mic, speaker phone, Bluetooth-y thing for your computer, probably can't go wrong with either the Jambox or the JBL Flip. Both cool stuff. That's it. Nice. Now I have one more thank you I have to put out there, and that is Brian Stevens. Um, he is on Twitter... You can find him on the web at dataporters.com. What happened was, he's BD Stevens on Twitter. Anyway, what happened was I was trying to move things around because we wanted the Parlay list or the Parlay discourse to be at parlay.rubyrogues.com. And so I had to move the sign-up page because that's where it was hosted. And I was having no end of trouble with Nginx trying to get it to, to work. And uh, he actually looked at my um, Nginx config and in about two minutes sent me back, here's what you need. And uh, work just great. So I also want to say a thank you to that just because it's related to discourse and how we got this all set up and stuff. So so thanks, Brian, for, for helping me out. Let's see. Sam, what are your picks? I'll actually pick something we talked about. We talked about this uh, moving our markdown to this new markdown library. So it's called MarkD. Uh, and it's a proper Lexa parser for markdown that can be used and I, I see it has a lot of potential and I'm thinking of using that at discourse so I'm going to plug that as one of my picks and uh, the other one that is kind of uh, I notice Adobe gets a lot of bashing a lot of the time so I'm going to plug an Adobe product <laughs> because why not No, I, I use um, uh, Adobe Photoshop Lightroom a lot for my photography yeah. and I think it's an actually awesome product and one of 
one of the best ways of managing large amounts of photos. So I think mm-hmm. it's definitely worth looking at if you're looking if you've got a large collection of digital photos. Cool. Nice. My turn. Yep. Go ahead, Robin. I, I just have one pick. Um, I guess it's uh, not exactly tech related, but there's a website that I really like called Feminist Frequency which is a series of videos that are totally free. And they basically examine uh, like representations of women in pop culture and stuff like that, and from a feminist perspective. But also, you know, t- like break it down into words that are, you know, really easy to, and concepts that are really easy to understand. In particular, they have a new series or that you guys might have heard of called Tropes versus Women, which analyzes actually video game tropes like the damsel in distress and stuff like that from a feminist perspective. And I just love those videos, so I thought I'd give that a shout-out. That sounds interesting. Cool. I listen to the video game when it's great. Yeah. Nice. So anyway, she has tons of them on all sorts of... I love pop culture, and it's, it's, it's really interesting when she gets down into it. Cool. All right, well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming again, guys. No problem. Yeah, this was uh, awesome. Pleasure. It's great. All right. Well, if you want to contribute to Discourse, you can find it uh, github.com slash discourse slash discourse. And we have a topic on Meta that, that um, outlines some ideas of stuff you can do. So we'll link to that from the show notes. Yep. Do, and, you, and, do you have a discourse set up to, for people to discourse about discourse? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's it's Meta. Called, sure do. Meta discourse, yeah. Meta.discourse.org for that. Cool. And we also have Try, which is if you just want to see how the site works and our various features, you can go there and post whatever crap you want, and it gets reset every 24 hours or so. Cool. So the, um, Some of our listeners have asked, the Parlay Discourse runs on the same discourse everybody else uses, so we're not using a special fork, and if you want to make Parlay better, all you got to do is go make Discourse better. So. That's right. Yep, and it's in fact using the same processes that are serving out meta yeah. discourse and all the rest of them. So, so you can what, be pretty sure it's on master. <laughs> one other question I want to ask, and this is something that I'm trying to get in the habit of: Are you guys going to be at any conferences or uh, events that people uh, can yes. find yet? Yes, we're both going to be at Gogoruku. I'll be speaking with Jeff about performance, uh, in particular about measuring Ruby and all sorts of tricks you can use. And I'll just be attending. Um, yeah. Well, the discourse team will be there, so that'll yeah. be exciting. Nice. Well, Josh will be gratified that he got me uh, thinking about asking that question now. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm going to be there, so I'm going to come say hi. Awesome. Please do. All right. Well, let's let's wrap up the show then. Uh, thanks for coming again, and we will catch you all next week.